React, Vue, and Angular are the most popular front-end JavaScript frameworks. Each of these frameworks lets front-end developers build components. A component is a high-level visual abstraction that is used to compose a user interface. Front-end development has moved towards component-driven development. At a typical technology company, a designer will put together a design file of different user interface elements, and the front-end engineer will take those UI elements and program code that can render those designs as components. As organizations have started to reuse their components and share them across the organization, the efficiency of design and front-end engineering is improving. User interface is gaining more of an emphasis with organizations, and new tools are allowing front-end engineers and designers to work together more productively. One of these tools is Storybook, which is a system for sharing components and the code that renders those components. Zoltan Ola joins the show to talk about Storybook today. He also talks about his company, Chroma. Chroma is building tools to allow design-driven teams to work together more effectively. We talked about how the relationship of designers and front-end engineers bears some resemblance to the relationship between dev and ops before the DevOps movement. There are some frictions in the process of moving between design and engineering implementation. And in talking to Zoltan, I got an understanding for how much the UI layer could improve through better tooling. I hope you enjoy this episode. Zoltan Ola, you are the CEO of Chroma. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. UI design has become a differentiator for many products, and there are a lot of teams that are involved in a single UI design. So you have this cross-functional relationship between product teams and design teams, the front-end engineering team, maybe the CEO gets involved at an average company, if we're talking about a product company. How do designs at a modern company, designs for products, for software products, how do they make their way from idea to implementation? Yeah, that's a really good question and actually something that you know we, we ask a lot ourselves when we talk to customers. So, you know, I, I feel like we have mapped that landscape out pretty well. And typically, uh, I'll talk about the last step first a little bit. So typically, designs end up in a combination of Sketch, Envision, which is a prototyping tool, Figma, um, which is very similar to Sketch, and it runs in the browser. And it's, it's sort of um, Sketch and Figma are, are tools that are um, basically modern versions of Photoshop tailored towards um, you know, front-end teams, teams building digital sort of applications and, and websites rather than, you know, the old school sort of suite of tools, Photoshop being sort of one of those which um, was designed really for any kind of designers, print just across various sort of different mediums. And then so that that's typically where everyone ends up. And the process for ending up at that artifact in one of those tools is um, varies actually quite a lot between teams. But I'd say the most popular version is you know the sort of stakeholders will work with first the product manager to define uh, requirements and spec out um, whatever new feature or application is being built. 
And then at some point, the designers get looped into that um, process. They share artifacts, you know, using a number of disparate tools. But let's say, you know, Google Docs is a pretty good kind of stand-in for, for how that typically works. And then it's, at some point, the product manager gets sort of less and less involved and designers take over and use various tools to get to the end result, which is a uh, an artifact in Sketch, let's just say. And usually at that point is when the front-end engineers are get involved and all of those artifacts that were generated previously, i.e. You know, requirements and specs, and Sketch artifacts, everything sort of gets handed over to the front-end person. Um, people, and then they'll go and and do the implementation. Some teams work together very closely in terms of of physical space. So they're in the same office. And usually what we see is oftentimes there are pods um, around five or six people that are interdisciplinary. So a handful of front-end engineers, usually one designer and one um, product manager. And in the case where they're all working together in the same room, this process becomes really fluid. So the front-end engineers get involved earlier and everyone's talking and everyone's pretty much on the same page. Where the process happens remotely or where the team is spread um, out across the organization, i.e. they aren't sort of sitting next to each other, then a lot more digital tools get involved, obviously, like Slack, um, Asana, artifacts get bounced around a lot more and, and, and sort of comments added within the various tools. But in general, that's kind of the, I don't know, I guess the the, the most common sort of union of, of what we see out there. Yeah. So you're illustrating that there are all these different teams involved and there are lots of different tools that different teams are using. Some of these tools might be shared between different teams. Maybe InVision is, is an example of a pretty flexible tool. Slack is an example of a pretty flexible tool. But there are some tools that are a little bit more disjoint, like Sketch. Sketch isn't the most shareable social product, or Photoshop is not very shareable or social. And there are tooling problems that can lead to, to conflicts. There are communication problems that can lead to conflicts. And I think of the problems between design and engineering today as not dissimilar from some of the problems that developers and operations had prior to the DevOps movement. Do you think there is an analogy to be drawn between the world of design today and the world of of operations versus software maybe five years ago? Yeah, I think I definitely see that now that you mentioned it's not something that I've thought about before, but I, I do see the analogy and, you know, from where I'm sitting, the one thing that stands out to me is that designers have a very different job and use very different tools to front-end engineers and in that same way, um, engineers to, to infrastructure people, DevOps people have had kind of a, you know, a similar split. With front-end, maybe even more so than with that engineering to, to DevOps, DevOps handoff, th- there are shared artifacts that become sort of central to the to the process and those artifacts kind of change over time and there's a source of truth that's important and you know the more i talk about it sort of out loud the more i kind of think wow that that does sound similar to uh to what happened between engineering and devops now so continuous delivery has helped devops work a lot more effectively what about in design is there a continuous delivery like process for the ui layer there is, and that's where things get a little bit tricky, and that's where folks will often squirm in their seat a little bit because with continuous delivery and continuous integration, 
the entire process from an engineering perspective basically relies on a pretty solid suite of tests and a pretty solid uh, code review process. And where UI is concerned, that's traditionally been really sort of hard to test. Tests have been brittle, they've been difficult to maintain. So a lot of UI ends up going untested. And that is sort of a contradiction to the continuous delivery methodology where, you know, you're pretty comfortable running the test, doing a code review, and then merging and and having the, the feature go directly out to production. Whereas, you know, if that feature involves UI, then today, you know, a lot of teams just kind of maybe cross their fingers a little bit and, and hope that it works because in more in, in most cases UI test coverage is 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 just not there when when compared to um, uh, to other code and the test coverage that teams typically would like to see before they're they're ready to go all in on a on a CD process designers today think in terms of components and i think of a component as similar to the objects that we have in object-oriented programming in in the software developer side of the house, how did component-driven development become popular? Yeah, I would say what happened was that the rise of these modern view layers, view layer technologies like React, like Angular, what they have in common is they all they have this idea of modular components with very strict and very well defined APIs. Where React in particular is concerned, you know, the APIs are typically made up of just pure JavaScript objects. Contrast that to the previous generation of technologies, you know, like jQuery, that is not the case. These technologies are written more um, from the perspective of the DOM manipulation APIs that are in the browser. And they're kind of poking their, you know, their tentacles into the DOM and kind of manipulating things directly and don't have very consistent APIs or, or, or even so much patterns for, um, for using them. And so what, what we ended up with is a movement towards a different style of technology where UI became much more modular and components became much, much more easily shared and dropped into to an application. And then that has given rise to a new kind of development paradigm around around component-driven development. And, and that sort of goes parallel with this trend we're seeing uh, with design systems, because obviously front-end engineering and design kind of heavily influence each other. So React and Angular and Vue, these all have components. The component model varies slightly from component world to component world, but generally speaking it's it's the same i mean we've got components in each of these languages and as components get more and more widely used this can affect the world of design in that we can get reusability in in an ideal world we would be reusing our components all the time we would be sharing components like we share open source modules does that happen in today's world? Are we able to effectively share components across design specs? That's a good question. I mean, I'd say we're still moving along on that journey. The technology is becoming is becoming standardized enough that, um, let's say, you're, you're a team and you're working in React. 
you can very easily look around for, you know, a date picker component or a tab component or what have you and, and throw that into your, um, your design system and your app um, relatively easily. There is still work to go on the CSS side. CSS is still more of a leaky abstraction and there are now technologies forming around um, CSS in JavaScript, but the, we, we still haven't seen much standardization around that. So I'd say, I'd say that is still kind of a work in progress, but we are moving towards a world where, um, where components, UI components become, yeah, very, very much kind of drop in in that fashion. Storybook is a development environment for UI components. Explain what Storybook is and how Storybook is used. Yeah, good question. So Storybook is simply an application, a very, very simple application that's installed in tandem with your main application uh, via NPM. Once Storybook is installed, it gets access to the same components that are present in your main application just by the virtue of of your, your checked out working copy. At that point, you can start to write what are called stories in Storybook. And these are analogous to test cases. And they're basically component examples. So in other words, let's say you have a simple um, text input component. You might make some component examples or stories for that component that represent the empty state, that represent the state of of a very long piece of text in that input box, that represent what that input box might look like if there's an error, there's a validation error. So you program these states as stories. They live in your source tree. So Storybook is, in essence, a tool that enables you to work on your components with mock data, with those components being uh, isolated away from the the rest of your app. So think of it as a workbench where you can uh, take a component, put it on the workbench, tweak it, add some more functionality, and then very easily, in fact, it's already integrated um, into the main application. So by and large, changes at the component level are very easy to make. How does the workflow of a front-end developer or a design team more broadly, mm-hmm. how do the workflows of developers change with Storybook? So what, what would happen, let's say you're, you're working on a new feature um, that's just come over the fence from, from the design on the product team, and you're an engineer. What you would typically do is fire up Storybook, is have a look at the design in Sketch or Figma, um, understand the requirements, and try and think about how the component needs to change. And you have the designs for it already. And so what you would do is you would typically fire up Storybook. It starts very quickly. There are no dependencies whatsoever. There's no database. There's no staging server. And navigate to the component that's, uh, that you're about to change according to this um, spec and the new functionality. And you'd probably begin by writing some stories. So just as in test-driven development, you would write the stories, i.e. the test cases that represent the data that that component is going to need, the data changes that are going to happen. And then and then fill in the blanks. So once you have the data, then you would you know, um, create the markup, create any sort of logic inside the component and style it visually to, to match the designs. So you can do most of uh, most of your, your visual, your front-end development just inside Storybook without even ever having to fire up the development version um, of, your, of your application. And this leads to a much faster process because you, you'll notice that, that in this process, because the developer hasn't had to work within the, um, the main application, 
They haven't had to get that application into the state um, that's required to, to build out this new feature, which can oftentimes be a cumbersome and time-consuming process. Let's say I join a company, and I'm a front-end developer at this company that I'm joining. Maybe it's a company like Airbnb. And it's my job at Airbnb to make a new user interface for some new product that they're building. And let's say that Airbnb is a user of Storybook. How am I going to be using Storybook in my process of building a new UI? Well, firstly, I'd have to ask, are you building, are you sort of extending the existing UI? Are you building new components? Are they going to be specific to whatever sort of feature you're working on? How do you kind of envisage that? Sorry to sort of put put it back on L- you. Let's say it's a completely new product. Let's say it, it's Airbnb golf courses. Like I can rent a golf course and I'm just building the thing from scratch, except maybe I'm, I can reuse previous Airbnb components if that would be useful. Mm-hmm. Great. So because you've said that Airbnb is, is already a user of Storybook, what we would probably find there is that there is a component library that represents Airbnb's look and feel, and that is just simply a design system with a, with a bunch of, let's just assume, React components for now. That would make it really easy to get started building a new product in Airbnb suite that's going to have you know the same look and look and feel that the rest of Airbnb does. So in this golf courses product, the engineer would start looking at the designs and the specs that are coming down and identify which of the components in those designs are already present in the um, sort of company-wide uh, Airbnb storybook kind of start rubbing their hands together and saying, hey, I've got no work to do there at the component level. Um, that, that work is already done. I just need to pull those sort of internal off-the-shelf components uh, into, into my new app and begin using them. Now, what they might also find is that there are custom components, sort of one-off components that need to be written that don't deserve a place in the company-wide component library, but they're only used for you know one or two screens uh, internally within the new app. So our developer would then proceed to fire up an an, an application level version of Storybook um, as opposed to the version of Storybook that's running at the component library level and begin building out those custom one-off components inside that local Storybook, obviously starting by writing stories first and sort of building out components there. There is an interesting scenario where, where the new app has sort of components designed for it that may be actually useful within the company-wide component library as well. Let's say a a new style of carousel or a new mapping component. Then it's possible, again, that the developer uh, would probably build that inside the new application first and then work with the component library team to integrate that that, uh, new component back into the the mainline company-wide component library. So what I found cool about looking at the storybook technology is that so if i if i open up a storybook i scroll through it and i'm looking at all of these different components you can see buttons and widgets and text formatting and sliders and all the different beautiful components that go into designing a user interface and this could be useful for a designer but there's also the fact that within the storybook you can find the code for all of these different UI components. And if it's in Vue, then you find the Vue code. If it's in React, you can find the React code. And in that, it seems like 
quite a useful place for developers and uh, like front end developers and designers to collaborate. Is there a degree to which the designers and the developers are collaborating in this same place? There is, and this is an area that I think the tooling can can get a lot better than what it is today. And one question really that sort of comes out of that is is where is the source of truth? And designers have their source of truth, engineers have their source of truth. And for engineers, it's always in the code base. And arguably, this is the best source of truth for designers as well, because, you know, the, the code base is what is, is deployed to customers. So that, that is, you know, typically the number one source of truth. So we are seeing add-ons to Storybook and kind of techniques being developed where those components can come back out of the code base and be exported back out into the design system that's living in Sketch or Figma or a tool like that. Sort of, we are seeing designers get more and more comfortable with this idea that, you know, the source of truth is in the code and their design system is constantly being updated with that source of truth as, as automatically as, as possible. And then they're able to use that design system to keep designing the, the next feature knowing that they're using components that are that are accurate and up to date. Where that breaks down a little bit is when designers are working on, on brand new components that obviously have never been um, codified yet, in which case the source of truth for that time period is in the in, in the sketch files and the design system and, until it gets sort of implemented and then there's a version zero and then that can kind of kickstart that, that feedback loop. There are prominent companies that are using Storybook. These are companies like Slack and Airbnb. Do you know of any examples of how it fits into their workflow? I mean, what we've been talking about on this conversation so far is, is the general workflow that they would have. In terms of specific examples, I can't think of any off the top of my head. But but, uh, but the main point but is, it's yeah. maybe maybe it's like it's a tool like something like GitHub almost is. is I, I don't know if it, if the level of, of significance is at par with GitHub, but these tools for collaboration tend to unlock opportunities that we don't even see coming. And it's just a, I just look at Storybook, I'm like, this is a really really valuable piece of design and front end development technology. Well, one of those opportunities that you mentioned that is that, that we're seeing being unlocked is that stakeholders, it's very easy to take a storybook and publish it, you know, on Netlify or somewhere else um, and, and do that even automatically as part of the CI pipeline and simply give folks a URL where they can see, you know, what's being worked on, what the latest state of the, the, the components in an application are. That is a really useful way to, to document basically the source of truth that's present in the code base and to hand that out to, you know, designers, product people, uh, and even external stakeholders, clients, um, CEOs, other business people. And they can simply sort of click that link and in their web browser see the, the you know, the, the live or the, the next to be released feature and even kind of play with it, which is typically sort of very difficult to do at the application level. So we're seeing Storybook being used as a, as a powerful documentation tool for representing what's being worked on in addition to what's available in the in the component library sorry Jeff. right yeah that's okay so storybook has been around since t- december 2015 the contributor base has evolved over time this is a healthy open source project can you give me a history of how the open source project has matured yeah so storybook was started by a guy called arunoda way back when 
And he worked on it. He ran a company at the time called Kadira, and they planned to build a, um, a commercial product around Storybook at the time, which never eventuated. Arunoda moved on. He's now working at Next.js. And there was sort of a vacuum there to, to fill in, in terms of open source maintenance. The project was already being used at various companies, and I would say it was already a thriving project. And, and so suddenly there was, there was danger that it would fall into, into being sort of not maintained, as a lot of open source projects do. So a number of folks came along. Norbert DeLangen is one of them, Michael Shillman, Tom Coleman, and, and, and many others, in fact, um, who banded together and began kind of maintaining and, and improving Storybook at that time. So I don't know off the top of my head when that was, maybe early 2017, late 2016. And since then, it has become a, a thriving, thriving community of contributors and core maintainers who have pushed the project forward. And one of the main things that's happened since then is uh, Storybook has gained support for a whole bunch of view layers outside of React, which was the original, originally the only view layer that, that was supported. So now we have Angular, we have Vue, we have Mithril, web components, etc., uh, etc. Et so you're deeply familiar with the issues of developing the UI layer. The UI layer is getting easier to build, but there are still many, many developer problems uh, there. You started a company called Chroma. Explain what Chroma does. So Chroma builds tools for front-end engineers. That's who we are at Chroma. And we started the company because we we're seeing that there are these new view layers coming out, new, new paradigms for writing front-end better. And there was a gap for tooling. So, you know, you have companies like Adobe that exist for designers and you have companies like GitHub that exist for engineers in general. And we believe that the time was right to form a company building tools for a specific type of engineers, front-end engineers, that have you know, quite a different a job than, than, say, an infrastructure engineer. So we founded Chroma. We're heavily involved in the open source um, storybook maintenance. And one of the first tools that we've built for front-end engineers is called Chromatic. And it's a UI testing tool that sits on top of Storybook. It's very easy to install it into Storybook and then begin getting automated regression tests across all of the, um, the stories that are in your, your Storybook. And that addresses this need that we talked about earlier in the conversation around um, CI/CD and, and a lack of um, good test coverage at the, the UI level when, you know, for teams that are aspiring to do a, a really good job with CD. So that's the Chromatic is, is the first of several tools that we have planned for specifically for aimed at front-end engineers. Can you talk in more detail about the relationship between Chroma and Storybook? Describe in more detail, what are some of the tools that you're building on top of Storybook? And what's your vision for how Storybook looks in concert with those tools that you're building? As I described, Chromatic is one of those tools. And, and it's designed to feel really familiar and comfortable to Storybook users. And it's also designed to tie into the Storybook product in a way that provides the best user experience for um, Storybook users. And so at Chroma, we really believe that Storybook is, is central to the new kind of development workflow to component-driven development that is becoming the new norm for front-end teams. And so we're really excited to keep uh, funding open source development 
for Storybook. Three of the core maintainers um, of Storybook work at Chroma. And so our vision is to keep pushing Storybook, the open source project, forward and adding more and more, you know, some open source, some commercial, like chromatic tools on top of Storybook that kind of leverage this um, really powerful component-driven development workflow to make front-end engineers' lives easier and easier. So another tool that we've announced that's in this vein is called Storybook Loop. And Storybook Loop is going to make it easier to collaborate and comment on stories across teams in a way that's currently missing from Storybook because Storybook is literally a piece of code that you install in your local application. And Storybook Loop is going to be a hosted service where, as I mentioned, you can kind of collaborate and share Storybooks much more easily. And then we have some other ideas that are just sort of very much at the concept stage at this at this time. But, you know, Storybook as the platform uh, that's central in a front-end engineer's sort of daily workflow is, is going to be what, what our tools sort of revolve around. So UI testing is something that might sound like something, like if, if people are listening to this, they might think, okay, UI testing, this is like what I do when I hire the manual testing team or people to go and click on click buttons on the UI but there is a way to automate UI testing and this is some of what you're working on at Chroma can you explain explain why UI testing is important and what UI testing actually means from the point of view of your tools that you've built yeah absolutely I'll give you a little bit of a, a picture of the UI testing landscape as well so, you know, as you mentioned, manually sort of navigating around an application, creating an account and clicking buttons and performing actions is the very most rudimentary form of, of UI testing that you can do. And obviously a human is, is sitting there sort of looking at, you know, looking at the application and making sure that it looks okay and that it works okay. Tools have been around for years. Selenium is, is the most popular um, tool that tries to automate this very manual, very human process. And, you know, it's the best that we've had, but it's not very good in that subtle changes to the application that a human would be okay with trip up, trip up Selenium, right? Because it's, it's a computer. It doesn't realize that, you know, color of a button has changed and that's okay, or things have shifted around a little bit and that's okay. So there's a very laborious workload for front engineers to keep these, these very brittle end-to-end Selenium tests up to date. So that's the current testing landscape. So Selenium is is central there. The other form of testing for UI that's common is is at the unit testing level. And that typically doesn't look at the visual appearance of UI. It sort of tests for functionality. If I click the add an extra item to this list button, is there really an extra item in the list? And and, and that check is done um, sort of programmatically and at the unit level. But again, it doesn't look at what that component looks like. That's kind of the, the status quo, the state of the art so far before uh, before Chromatic. With Chromatic, we have a set of what, what what sits in the middle of end-to-end tests and unit tests. So, you know, the easiest way to think about it is adding a visual layer to unit tests where the tests have already been written by engineers in the course of their development. So this is, um, you know, during sort of component development in Storybook, developers are writing stories which are effectively test cases for components. What Chromatic does is it takes these test cases, it renders them, and it compares the delta, so the the, the difference between the current version of your app or of your component to the previous version, and it flags any differences. And it does this at the granularity of a component. 
So what you end up with is a process that very much slots into, into CI/CD in a neat way, and that is via, via integrating into the, the code review workflow. So the way that that works for, for Chromatic is uh, we'll badge a, um, a pull request with any changes that happened at the component level inside, you know, as a result of that pull request and, and flag those changes as either. And, and so then uh, uh, reviewers who could be designers, they could be product people or other engineers can simply look through those changes and either flag visual regressions, things that don't look right or, um, or accept changes that are correct. And also, it gives them an opportunity to validate any changes that they're, they're not sure um, that they're correct with other members of the team. So typically, an engineer will be working on on, uh, on some design. And at the end of that process, they may not be sure whether their work reflects what the designer intended. The way that that will surface through chromatic as a, is as a, visual, as a visual difference. And then that engineer can can forward that uh, the chromatic URL um, or the pull request in GitHub onto the designer and say, hey, is this right? Is this what you intended? So a long-winded way um, to circle back to the beginning of the question, chromatic sort of provides an extra level of assurance at the UI level that, that um, your app and your components are going to look and work right without the overhead of having to maintain these complicated and brittle end tests that was the previous sort of state of the art. Okay, so let's go a little bit deeper on this. I thought front-end code was pretty simple. It's just doing stuff like rendering a button to a page or rendering a list of golf courses to my Airbnb for golf courses web page. Why is there a risk of performance issues in front-end code? Oh, wow. So you're correct. Front-end code can be very simple. And, you know, in a world of, of web development, maybe five, maybe 10 years ago, that was that was more or less the case. Like front-end code was rendered on the server, delivered to a browser, and, and it was mostly static and pretty basic. Now what we're seeing is very sophisticated front-end code, kind of web applications that look and feel more like native applications. If you look at this tool that we're using to record the podcast, you, you'll see this sound wave that's slowly drifting across across the, the user interface. And so now we have these very rich, these very complex UIs that, that are no longer just flat lists of text. They're oftentimes rendered and calculated and processed in the browser on the client side. And so they, they become, you know, like serious pieces of code. It, it's, you know, front-end engineering is now turning into serious engineering work where the best companies out there that are building the best apps, um, the Airbnbs, the Googles, the, the apps that we use every day. And we're like, wow, these apps look and feel amazing. They're almost magical. They're smooth. They're animated. We have these user experiences that um, that are completely new in terms of what we come to expect from the web. Well, these this new sort of state of the art front end code is no longer as simple as it used to be, and 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 that's where tooling like Chromatic becomes you know really really essential to the modern developer in making sure that those experiences still continue to work right. So I've heard that companies have been doing this kind of performance testing at the very top layer. For kind of a long time, you hear that classic story about how Amazon always keeps latency under, I don't know, whatever it is, 100 milliseconds or something, 
because they've noticed that every you know every request that takes longer than that they lose profit or they lose a billion dollars a year something like that what's new about what you're building today so if i'm think let's say like i'm i'm looking at the market for for performance testing what does chromatic do differently than the performance testing tools of the past to be clear, Chromatic today isn't a performance testing tool. It's an accuracy testing tool. So we're testing to make sure that UI looks right and functions right, not necessarily that it, it performs well. Ah, okay, I see. Okay, so now I understand better because if I recall, what happens when you do a push with the code from your new design, like let's say you make a design update, you push it, and on the back end, Chromatic is is rendering the new design, and then it presents it side by side with the old design and and make sure that your new code looks like you are expecting it to. Is, is that right? It's exactly right. It's exactly right. And, you know, changes that it surfaces could be legitimate. They could be, you know, related to the feature that you built, or they could be unexpected regressions that you didn't realize you changed one thing over here and something broke over there that are you know that you you wouldn't have found um, in the past, um, and now with chromatic you do. Got it. So, is there also a, a side of this to gauging the the performance issues of of front end components? Because you can have some issues like, let's say you make a change to a UI component, and it it is this list of golf courses. And if your list of golf courses is really, really long, or some of the golf courses have, you know, some some element of their layout that takes a really long time to load, there's some lag of latency that you've added to it. You know, you might want to know about these the performance issues that might be associated with with a front end component. Is there also a, a layer of, of performance testing here, or is it, or do do I get some feedback on the latency of the UI layer? Because like obviously. You know, the UI layer in its finished form is is one thing, but then there's also the UI layer sort of in the interactive context or the as it's loading context. Yeah, good question. So what we're seeing, what, what, what we have is when teams are working within Storybook, then they will create stories for those very sort of th- those, those funky edge cases for components. Let's say you have a list with you know hundreds and hundreds of items for it. Well, that's very easy to create a story for in Storybook, and that's exactly the perfect reason for using Storybook. So as a front-end engineer, you can develop the happy path for your component in a very kind of simplified manner, and then you can click over to the unhappy path, to the you know lots and lots of data path, and kind of see what happens, see if it breaks. So those kind of performance issues at the component level are very much surfaced during the development process, and they'll never even make it out into production. Now, for performance issues arising out of something like data latency or um, or infrastructure issues, then yes, those kind of problems can happen in production, and the storybook chromatic sort of tooling combination is not designed to surface those those problems, those kind of runtime performance issues. But a lot of the time, it never gets that far um, because issues are identified during development uh, within Storybook. Very cool. So what are the other tools that you have uh, in store for your your series of products? I mean, are there other problems that you're interested in solving at the UI layer? Yeah, what we're really interested in is digging deeper into this design uh, development handoff 
and hand back, as we're starting to call it, from development to design. So we're kind of exploring the nuances of that process and kind of understanding how we can we can better help front-end engineers and designers, product people navigate that that handoff and handback. And then the other thing that we're looking at is is component versioning. You know, now that we have this proliferation of design systems and components, and they're all being shared, sort of understanding you know how how best to upstream changes, how best to maintain multiple versions of a component or a design system, and kind of work with these in in, in a way that's optimized for um, the front end development process. So you know those are two areas that we're really really interested in and, and interested in in providing better solutions. We've done a lot of shows about go-to-market strategy for developer tools. Most of it involves going after back-end developers, and I feel like back-end developers are a little bit closer to the world of the CIO, the world of the CEO, perhaps. What's your go-to-market strategy for developing sales to more of a front-end UI problem? Yeah, it all comes back to sort of moving faster and ultimately saving money during the application development process. So uh, with something like Chromatic, you know, there are fewer defects. It improves the development process between designers and engineers. And there's a very strong case to be made at the organizational level that um, it allows teams to build product faster, that's higher quality, and that's better for the user. So the, the challenge can be in quantifying that uh, as a dollar amount within organizations, but but they're getting it. You know, We're seeing them sort of understand and, and, and accept that. Where it's different from commercializing backend technologies is that there, the, the sales pitch is you know in some ways a lot clearer. It's like, okay, you have this code and it's running in production. And so there's kind of a lot of justified fear around that um, working well and being fast. And so, so I think that's why on the, on the back end, it's, it's, it's easier to make that case. But with front-end tools, you know, it's possible to, to make that value proposition in, in the form of, um, of workflow improvements and you know, time-to-market improvements and, and that sort of thing. Does that answer your question? It does. Yeah, definitely. I think you know, time is on your side because over time, we've seen developers on the back end become more and more able to procure things. We, we've seen the people on the back end be able to buy things from AWS directly as opposed to having to go through some procurement department. Now, there's obviously cost oversights, but you see more and more that developers have control over a budget in an organization, and there's no reason to think that that wouldn't continue to propagate and flow more and more to front-end developers buying more and more front-end tools. In fact, to some degree, it feels like today the front-end developers don't have as much stuff that they can buy to save their to save their time and i think that if they could buy stuff off the shelf and save more time and not spend as much time developing a front end ui layer things would be better and it does seem like there are opportunities for for people to come in and build new tools for the front end that's exactly right and and what we're seeing and hearing even in very large enterprises is that individual contributors, the developers that are on the front lines, are being entrusted more and more to buy the tools that they that they need that will make their their work better. And it, and, and and it's sort of logical, right? And yet, sort of years and years ago, with enterprise software, um, it was the other way around. 
And so, you know, enterprises are catching on and becoming kind of more efficient in that sense by providing a credit card that developers can use to, you know, buy relatively, you know, cheap, cheap SaaS products. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. We're seeing that with our stuff as well, is that, you know, the barrier to adoption within even very large enterprises is, is incredibly low for that reason. One other canonical problem, well, it's sad that this is a canonical problem, but perennial problem of, of front-end engineering is the disparity between the web developer and the Android developer and the iOS developer. There have been some platforms that have tried to address these in a unified fashion, like React Native or Flutter. Are you optimistic at all about these unified languages, these unified platforms for development, or do you think it's still too early? That's a great question, actually. I've been you know, very optimistic and very disappointed and very optimistic, almost you know, in a, a, as in riding a roller coaster over the last few years with these technologies, because obviously there's, there's a big draw card to having to maintain you know, one code base that works across everything. However, in reality, what you often find is that you're maintaining one code base. It's kind of a substandard user experience across all of the various platforms. And you're spending a lot of your time chasing weird arcane bugs. And and it sort of almost ends up being a -a whack-a-mole type situation. And we're starting to hear the same thing now about React Native, which rewind the clock sort of two years Folks like myself were very optimistic that, hey, this is maybe the model that's going to that's gonna solve it. And now we're hearing from companies that are turning away from React Native and, and going back to maintaining, you know, three se- separate code bases. So, you know, I think if, if I was to kind of look at the data, I'd say, mm, no, that, you know, even though we want a technology like this to exist, time and time again, um, these technologies are, are failing. And, but the big caveat that I'd make there is if you're really, if what matters to you is not so much a really great user experience across, you know, all platforms, but time to market and a core user experience that provides an incredible amount of value to your customers without necessarily being really polished, really pretty, then, then I would say, you know, these technologies like React Native are, um, are really, really good. And, and, and in fact, better than ever in terms of, of, of building that experience and, and getting a really low time to market for those type of apps. You helped launch Apollo GraphQL, and GraphQL is having an impact on the front end, or it, maybe you would say middle middleware, middleware between back end and front end, front end. What's your impression of how GraphQL is impacting the software development world today? It's putting a lot of power in the hands of front-end engineers, and it's it's giving them the opportunity to move much faster than they could before. Whereas previously, they would need to go to a back-end team and, and have sort of these custom endpoints written for them, you know, oftentimes for every little feature. Now with GraphQL, they're not, they, they don't necessarily need to do that, so they can kind of get a feature built end-to-end without having to, to sort of work with any other teams internally. And so that's really speeding up the time it takes to, to build features for front-end teams. And then on the back-end side, well, it's also freeing up back-end people from having to write these, you know, boring, almost boilerplate endpoints that are just pulling data together that, that the front-end teams uh, need. So I, I'd say technologies like GraphQL have made, you know, made the lives of both front-end and back-end engineers a lot more pleasant in the day-to-day and, and have also sped up applications for end-users 
because they're loading you know much less data that they used to in fewer requests. Okay. Well, Zoltan Ola, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, my pleasure, Jeff. Anytime. Wow.